Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey everybody, thanks for tuning in to Deep Dive, the all-music books podcast where we speak with authors of music books, bios, history, criticism, cultural takes, and everything in between. I'm your host, Steve J. Today's guest is Rob Kenner, who wrote the book The Marathon Don't Stop, The Life and Times of Nipsey Hussle. Welcome, Rob. Thanks for having me, Steve. It's great to be here. So the first time I really became aware of Nipsey Hussle was upon hearing about his murder. You know, reading your book, it was a, a revelation, truly inspiring, and of course, tragic read. Well, I think you're not alone in that. There were a lot of people who were completely unaware of Nipsey Hussle's movement, and that was in some ways by design. He was not interested in being the most famous artist in the world. He wanted to be successful on his own terms, and he wanted to improve his own life, his family's life, and uplift his community. And those were his priorities, uh, never being on every billboard around the world. So a lot of people tapped in, I think, following his memorial at the Staples Center. You know, why was this mixtape rapper suddenly being eulogized by Snoop Dogg and Stevie Wonder and President Obama writes a letter in, in tribute and 21,000 mourners are on their feet weeping and cheering for him. Why all this fuss for someone who was basically considered an underground rapper for most of his career? So that's why I wrote the book, The Marathon Don't Stop. I believe Nipsey Hussle is one of the most misunderstood and underestimated figures in hip hop history. Yeah, and your book really shows that. But let, let's dig into the fuss because uh, there's a lot there. Now, you were the founding editor of Quincy Jones magazine, Vibe. Hustle would occasionally send in submissions for new rapper of the month. And he even came to New York. He met you. And you say the intensity of his focus was palpable. Can you explain? Our next section at Vibe was a launching pad for brilliant artists to introduce themselves to the world. And artists like Nas and Jay-Z and Biggie and Outkast, Mary J. Blige, they got their first page in Vibe in the next section. So that was the goal that Nipsey Hussle set for himself. He wanted to be in the next section. And to be quite honest, that was a pretty ambitious goal for where he was at that moment in his career. There was another magazine called The Source, which had a thing called Unsigned Hype. And you could be pretty much straight off the block and get an unsigned hype because it was really about the underground rising. 
But if you were in the next section, that meant you had a record deal. You probably had a, a single that was buzzing on the radio. Um, Nipsey wasn't quite at that point for the time that he was sending his demos and headshots to Vibe. And I found out later he was getting a little frustrated that we were not recognizing his brilliance. But like every other goal that he set for himself, he just persevered and he would not be deterred. And by God, he made it up to the offices of Vibe. So at that moment in 2009, he had by that point linked with Epic Records. A lot of labels do that with a developing artist. They quietly support them without branding them as a major label act because they want to make a big reveal later. But still, Nipsey was so excited to be in that room and you could feel his intensity of focus. That's what I was talking about. It was a victory lap in and of itself, just to be up in the offices of Vibe. I think everybody who was in the room that day remembers Nipsey Hussle. He was someone I had never heard of before, but you could just tell there was something crackling in his brain. And that was before he pressed play on the music. <laughs> well, you also wrote that when you, you heard about his murder, your mind flashed back to your final conversation. Yeah, I mean, the thing that I thought about was, well, there were many thoughts. It was a crushing reality to absorb just emotionally. And, you know, someone who inspired me as he did, I felt a sense of loss. And I'm not his family member or business partner, but, you know, a lot of people love Nipsey in a genuine way. And I, I think you know, the sense of loss was deep. What I thought about after that initial shock and sadness wore off was this conversation that we had about a song called Dedication, where he calls himself the Tupac of my generation. So, you know, Tupac means a lot of things to different people. And that's a big statement regardless. So I'd just like to know your thought process. And so he said, I know it's a big statement. For me, Nip said, Tupac was a Trojan horse for the streets, meaning that there was a lot more inside him than might first meet the eye, you know, that thug life persona, which a lot of people get labeled that way. So Nip saw Tupac as a Trojan horse for the streets. He said that in our culture, street culture, um, being intelligent is sometimes considered a form of weakness. And you don't want to appear to be too smart because it will turn people off. So there was a uh, strong identity between, you know, how he saw Tupac and, and how he saw himself. You know, and she said, I can relate to that feeling of, you know, that was the inspiration that led him to make that comparison. And, you know, when I heard about uh, Nipsey's untimely death, I also thought about the fact that Tupac was taken from us very early. And, you know, I'm sure that he was not foreseeing something like that for himself, but, you know, the irony and, and the sad parallel is, is inescapable. You know, there was another comparison, which I learned later when I was working on the book that Nipsey Hussle was so inspired by Tupac as a young artist, but something I didn't know is that Tupac's mother actually heard one of his early recordings, Afeni Shakur, who was, of course, a member of the Black Panther Party and very important activist, apart from being Tupac's mom, heard an early recording that Nipsey made when he was actually not even called Nipsey Hussle. He was rapping under the name Concept at that time. And the song made its way to her attention and she was so impressed with it. She said, have this young man flown down from 
LA to Atlanta, I want him to perform at a launch event for a posthumous album that uh, we're putting out of Tupac's music called Better Days. So through some strange legacy destiny combination, Nip ended up being drawn into the orbit of Tupac's family at a very early age. So it's, it's very, you know, you can't make this stuff up. Well, let's talk a little bit about Nipsey's upbringing. His father was from the East African country of Eritrea. And that's a place that Nipsey and his brother Sam would visit several times. And it had a huge effect on Hustle's worldview and his philosophy. Yeah, absolutely. And when I spoke with Nipsey, he said that that was a life-changing experience for him, his first trip to Eritrea. So his father was someone who Nip described as an African freedom fighter. And what that meant is he was from a nation in East Africa where there had been a long-running 30-year-plus civil war between people who look very similar and have a lot in common culturally, uh, Ethiopia and Eritrea. And Nip's father ended up fleeing to America, seeking asylum from the conflict, which was brutal and you know devastating conflict that still is playing out even today. But he kept in touch with his culture and he made sure that his family would hear music from East Africa and eat the food. He was, he was a cook who, who prepared nice spicy dishes at home. And so he made sure that they kept in touch with their roots in East Africa. But at a certain point in his son's development, when they were in their mid-teens, their father just decided it's time for us to go back and visit grandma and aunts and family members who were living there. And I think it was more than a family reunion for him. I think that uh, Dawit Askadom, as his father's uh, named, understood that his sons needed to connect to some other reality other than South LA. He wanted them to see a different way of life. And although Nip was a little reluctant to go for three months, that was a long time to be away from all that he had going on in LA at the time, he agreed to go, him and his brother and his dad, and he saw things that changed his whole outlook on life. He saw a country where, you know, most of the authority figures looked like him. Um, He saw a country where family and the daily meal was the most important thing. The whole country stops at midday for the midday meal. Kids come home from school, businesses stop, everyone gathers. Um, There's more respect for women. He talked about that and how uh, his experience in Africa made him question a lot of his assumptions about relations between men and women and the examples that he saw. Just all these things changed his whole worldview. And, you know, when he returned to LA, the people who knew him before and after said you could just tell there was something, a more powerful sense of purpose, I guess is one way of putting it. He, he understood um, a phrase that is often used in hip hop songs, knowledge of self. He gained knowledge of self in Africa and, and it stuck with him. And as you mentioned, he returned um, later in his life after he had um, put out his album, Victory Lap, and was about to go on tour. Um, when he was there, he would tell them one day, I'm going to be a famous rapper and you're going to hear about me. 
And sure enough, by the time he returned to Eritrea, he was a famous rapper and he was, you know, given the VIP treatment, him and his brother and dad made the same trip for a shorter length of time, but they met with the president of Eritrea and uh, he gave an amazing interview to the state newspaper there where he explains pretty much his whole life's journey. And it was clear he wanted his fellow Eritrean people to understand what hip hop was all about and what his journey had meant. And um, he very patiently answered the questions of a journalist who really didn't know anything about his life, but it, it was a, a very poignant moment. Well, and as you mentioned, you know, this must have had a, quite the effect because where he really grew up was on Slauson Avenue and Crenshaw Boulevard in South Central LA, which is a, a serious center of gang culture. Yeah. Well, Slauson and Crenshaw is where it all began for him. Yeah, Absolutely. At the age of 15, he, he stops going to school, leaves home, and joins the Roland 60s Neighborhood Crips, which is a subgroup of the famous and larger Crips gang. You know, it's a bit coded in your book what exactly he did with the gang and, and how he was involved. But, you know, very soon and very young, he was making a lot of money. Yeah, I think there's as much information as is available is what I've shared i you know i i didn't write it in code deliberately but you know i'm i'm going from the information that is verifiable and and true and uh nipsey never he never wavered on the fact that he was a member of the rolling 60s and after his life had changed completely and uh, you know he had found ways to encourage other people from his gang and from his community to pursue the most positive kind of life possible, he still remained committed to that organization because I believe he understood that the roots of gangs in America is much more complicated than what people are led to believe by the mainstream media and by Hollywood and, and even rap music in some ways kind of is part of the problem. The story of gangs in America is a complex one and it was a big part of my own education process in putting this book together. For starters, I would mention that, you know, we're having this conversation in 2021 and in January 6th of 2021, there was a violent coup attempt on the U.S. Capitol building led by a gang called the Proud Boys. They're not from South Central Los Angeles. They're mostly white guys from, you know, other parts of America. Uh, one of their founders was a member of the Vice Media, you know, one of the original founders of a multi-million dollar media corporation. So, you know, they tried to overthrow the government. And um, I would say that's a pretty dangerous gang. Right, right. Um, so, you know, we don't hear probably spoken about as a gang, but that's that's what they are. And when you talk about the history of Crips and Bloods in, in L.A., you have to go back and really peel back the layers, which I, you know, that's why the book is called The Marathon Don't Stop, The Life and Times of Nipsey Hussle, because I really try to place Nip in the context of hip hop history, but also American history and L.A. history. And so... In putting this book together, I learned about a gang called the Spook Hunters, which was a racist white gang that was working closely with the Los Angeles police. And, you know, their jackets had a logo of a black person being lynched on the back of the jacket. Uh, so naturally, neighborhoods that were predominantly black 
needed their own community organizations just to protect themselves. You know, the spook hunters were intimidating black kids going to school or black families that dared to move slightly out of the neighborhoods where they were restricted by government policy, redlining, restrictive covenants and property deeds. And all this is real facts. Like there's no rumors, there's no conspiracy theories. This is all, you know, there's hundreds of footnotes in the book. And I tried to make sure everything was journalistically rigorous for that reason. I don't want this to be coded or open to debate. This is, this is a true story. And so, you know, to understand why a brilliant young man like Hermes Ascadome decides to join the Rolling Sixties. You have to understand why a neighborhood has a gang like the Rolling Sixties and where they came from. And I think Nipsey understood that history very well. He referenced a lot of this history in his music and in interviews. And it's my belief that one of his goals was to redirect gangs like the Rolling Sixties and other neighborhoods, you know, away from block-to-block -block warfare and, and self-destruction and back to the original purpose, which is community upliftment and uh, protecting your own and changing lives, you know, and making a better life. And that's what the real American dream is. So, you know, in, in that sense, you know, obviously it's a complicated legacy. Gangs have a lot of, you know, tragedy and destruction that go along with their history too. But I believe that Nipsey Hussle made a conscious choice to be a part of that story in order to redirect things in a different direction. And one of the fascinating points in your book is that a lot of that perspective comes from Nipsey and his friends. And so to hear it in those terms is very different from any of the stories that we usually hear, any of the reporting that we usually hear. You know, it's it's real and it's what they do. And, you know, I just want to point out when I said coded, I meant, and it's probably in Nipsey's words, you know, he's not going to tell anybody exactly what he did. Exactly. Why would he do that? Um, you know, he decides to focus on music ultimately. And one of the things that was really, really fascinating is he was very savvy tech speaking and very self-directed as we've talked about. So he builds a studio with out of date equipment and well, his whole life in many ways was, uh, you know, Nipsey Hussle was just always in pursuit of the ultimate studio. There were many disappointments along the way. Um, you know, some of his first recording studios were just simple setups in other people's homes. You know, at a certain point, Nip made the decision to get out of any type of street life, sold his car, his beloved car, to get a bag of cash and he called his brother black sam and he tells this story in in the song slawson and crenshaw uh, crenshaw and slawson true story um but he he got a bag of cash for selling his ultimate dream car and he met black sam who was a retail genius and still is um and you know matched nip dollar for dollar they went to Sam Ash and they bought recording equipment and, you know, they set up a home studio in a house where, you know, the brothers and their dad had bought a house. It was actually in a part of LA, which was not in their usual neighborhood. It was actually right on the border with another gang, which was actually a arch rival of the Rolling 60s. So it was kind of a dangerous spot to be in, but they chose it deliberately because they didn't think anyone would think that they would be living there hmm. and it was a choice that they made to kind of 
take some of the heat off Nip because, you know, by choosing to completely devote himself to music and turn his back on any kind of street life, that came with a little bit of complications. You know, there's people that still have certain expectations and, you know, you want to just keep a low profile for a while. Unfortunately, that amazing moment of the music that he was able to create there and the, and the home that he and his brother and his, his dad had came to an end because the police raided the house and they confiscated all of the recording equipment. They confiscated really anything of value in the house. And it was a, a devastating blow, um, which had nothing to do with any kind of gang stuff. It, it had more to do with um, actually DVD bootlegging and, and you know, a, something that his brother was doing at the time just to, you know, as I said, he was a relentless retail machine and, uh, you know, had built quite a thriving DVD hustle there for a while. But that was a, a big deal at that moment in LA, especially with Hollywood, you know, really cracking down on street DVD sales. And so they came after the brothers in their home and took everything. lost everything. Yeah. Well, tell us about Dexter Brown, who would enter his life, um, you know, around this time and become a lifelong influence partner, friend. Dexter's story is one that has never really been told properly. And I'm, I'm so uh, pleased that he reached out to me. I had never heard of him when I started working on the book. He's thanked in the credits to the Crenshaw mixtape, which is a very important tape in Nip's whole uh, journey. But Dexter was a photographer and a civil engineer who bought a house in the neighborhood, him and his wife, planning to start a family uh, and planning to start a new life. They were uh, both had met at Howard University, very upperly mobile young couple. But they wanted to live in a black neighborhood and they wanted to contribute something to the culture of that neighborhood. And that was their goal. And, um, during the time they bought this house, they had no idea that they were in rolling 60s territory. And, you know, they soon figured it out and began to open their home to some of the creative kids that they met in the neighborhood. And one of those was Aramis Ascadon. You know, this was at a time actually when it was a turning point in Nipsey's life. He wasn't actually known as Nipsey yet. Young Aramis Ascadon was a genius student. He was able to build computers from parts by reading articles in magazines. And he was asked to leave high school because some parts to school computers had gone missing. And he was suspected of having been involved in the disappearance of those parts, which he denied. But in any case, he, he left school and his Parents were not happy about that. Um, his mom in particular had asked him, if you're not going to school, you know, you're not going to be staying here. So um, he ended up moving in with his grandma, but he was kind of just out in the streets surviving by his wits. And that's when he bumps into Dexter Brown, who takes him in, sets him up in a home where there is recording equipment where his friends can come in and people that he hadn't yet met from the neighborhood are all gathering to make music. And that is where the early mixtapes are made. That is where he gets the name Nipsey Hussle. And really his whole persona gels at Dexter's. And it's also important to note that Dexter was more than just a, a resource to come make music. He was a mentor. He taught Nipsey a lot of these principles about intellectual property ownership and the whole principle of F the middleman, which became kind of a, a mantra for them, was born at 
Dexter's house. Uh, and yeah, that, that story has never been told. And it's an important part of Nipsey's development. Yeah. And it's, uh, you know, very influential and inspirational pieces that he teaches uh, Hustle, who is more than willing to learn and, and take that. Uh, you write that Hustle's formative years as an artist coincided with the rise of MP3s and the fall of CDs. Can you yeah. explain how, how that affected him? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, he likened it to, you know, the launch of his career, he likened to being in an airplane that is taking off from the runway. And just as it becomes airborne, you have to stop and rebuild the engines in mid-flight. So that was Nipsey's music career. You know, think about the fact that year 2000, roughly, was the peak of the music industry in America, the most money being made. CDs are selling for 20 and 22 dollars at Tower Records and you know it's just an amazing amount of money that is being minted and remember too that hip-hop is emerging as one of the most lucrative genres in, in the, the game at that point you know you've, you've seen the rise of Death Row Records, Bad Boy Records, million dollar music videos you know it's it never got bigger than that. Um, so Nip is growing up in Los Angeles, seeing all this death row era is playing out while he's a young man and, you know, aspiring to become a rapper. But he's also very tech savvy. So he sees Napster starting. He sees the MP3 revolution. He sees file sharing. He sees people getting music for free. So why should they buy a CD for $22? He certainly wouldn't. He was downloading stuff as, you know, he was selling, you know, CD mixes in high school, him and his friend uh, Rallo and Rimpaw were doing that at school. So, you know, he was very much a kid of that generation. And for him to start his career at that moment, he had to understand technology. He had to develop his social media presence. He had to find new ways to reach his audience. And that's where the innovations that he came up with were born you know the whole idea of like today artists like taylor swift and justin bieber when they put out a new album they sell what's called a bundle it's a cd with maybe a t-shirt and tickets to the world tour and you sell like early super fans get an early opportunity to buy the bundle and they might spend 500 dollars, you know large amounts of money for music Nipsey came up with this idea. This is his idea. And he did it for a mixtape called Crenshaw, which came at an important moment in his development where, you know, his major label album ended up not coming out because of executive changes at Epic Records. And he walked away from Epic. He walked away from that deal in control of his masters and decided to do the marathon, decided to do an independent mixtape campaign. And Crenshaw was his moment of saying, okay, I've given you a bunch of free mixtapes. Now it's time for you to support me. My real core fans, I believe they are going to be willing to pay $100 for my next mixtape. Even though it's available for free download the next day, they're going to come out at midnight the night before and spend $100. And I'll also give them tickets to a concert where only my super fans will be there, you know, my, my true believers. And he called this concept proud to pay. Right. You know, he believed that this was something that people who really supported your movement 
would be sufficiently engaged with you that they will do that level of support. And of course, people thought he was crazy. You know, there were a lot of very skeptical social media posts and articles. And it was even a black owned radio station in LA that Nip was very hurt to hear that they were kind of poking fun at the idea of the rapper who has a hundred dollar CD. But sure enough, they moved a hundred thousand dollars worth of CDs the first night. And of those, um, you know, a large portion were purchased by Jay-Z who heard about the idea and saw that it was brilliant and wired the money for a hundred CDs for, you know, $10,000 wired that night. And as Nipsey told me later, you know, once Jay-Z tapped in, everybody became a believer. Right. And, you know, that's a shake your head moment. Uh, you briefly mentioned, but one of the moments I definitely shook my head is you mentioned Epic Records and they hooked him up with that. Electronic dance music. Yeah, they, they wanted. Yeah. I mean, it's just one of those things where the label, you know, the exec who signed him had moved on, as sometimes happens at major labels. And someone else came in who just had no clue who Nip was or why it was important. And they were just looking at whatever was trendy at the moment, like make an EDM record. And his album was finished and ready to go, but they just, you know, but it was a blessing in disguise in some ways because, you know, Nipsey's whole movement, he never really wanted to sign the deal with Epic Records. He did it because at that moment he needed money for a lawyer because he had to fight a case. And, you know, that was a decision that he eventually came to regret because it, although they supported the early you know, Bullets Ain't Got No Name mixtapes and gave him a big publicity push and, and all of that, I think he started to see that his creative control and just the integrity of his art was being compromised by working with a major label. And, and there were many other artists who've had that experience, but, you know, Nipsey was one of the few who was bold enough to just walk away from a major label deal and shout out to his management and the people who believed in him to negotiate to allow him to walk away not only with his freedom from that deal but in control of his mixtape catalog which is a huge asset and you know that would continue to reap great rewards for him throughout his whole career we're speaking with rob kenner the author of the marathon don't stop the life and times of nipsey hustle there's a lot going on at this time. You mentioned the Bullets mixtape, and that's that's a big thing that's happening. And Snoop and Game both like those things. And then his circle starts to grow, and he reaches out to another person who would figure prominently, and that's a photographer. You mentioned him earlier, uh, Jorge Paniche. Uh, what was his story? Well, another very self-guided, self-actualizing, tech-savvy, cool, creative kid from L.A. who was already doing photography. He was deep into sneaker culture and MySpace. And, you know, they were kindred spirits in a lot of ways, Nip and Jorge. And, and uh, they recognized each other at a, a, a crucial moment. And, uh, you know, he, Jorge went to photograph Nip on the set of the Hustle in the House music video, which was a breakthrough single, one of the first major hits that, that Nipsey Hussle had that got him on the radar of like BET and, you know, mainstream radio. Uh, it actually sampled uh, Criss Cross record Jump, which was an early favorite of Nip. So, you know, he loved the song, the streets loved the song. And 
Jorge comes out to do the photo shoot at uh, the video. And it was just a moment where, you know, he witnessed a legendary, you know, transformation. You know, this was a kid from this neighborhood who built his career without any compromise. And he got to the point of having a massive hit record and shooting the video right at Slauson and Crenshaw. This is a sweet and amazing triumphant moment. And for Jorge to be there was great. But the game changer was after Nip walks away from Epic Records and decides I'm gonna start the marathon. I'm gonna do this independent mixtape run and I need someone who can help me present my image in a different way. You know, I don't want to be marketed as this cliche gangster rapper that the major label kind of tried to play up in, in my imaging. And so he had a meeting. He invited Jorge to a new studio and office that he had set up. And he said to uh, Jorge, you know, would you like to be my partner and, you know, rent space in this office and we'll build this together. And uh, to his credit, Jorge jumped at the chance and they began working on the marathon mixtape, which, you know, the visuals were all, all the design, all the photography, all the typography, that was all Jorge. And, and, you know, he continued to work all through Nip's entire run, the whole marathon clothing logo and all of the design has always been, um, you know, overseen by Jorge Peniche. Um, and, you know, he was someone that stayed till this day is still closely involved with, you know, the Puma ads that you see, uh, you know, for the, the marathon clothing, Puma collabs, that's Jorge's photography. Um, he designed the billboards around LA, which are still uh, paying tribute to Nip's legacy. So he's an integral part of the, the whole Nipsey hustle movement. Well, he, it's amazing the people that he surrounded himself with them when it came to music, but more importantly, perhaps branding. And he was so far ahead of the time in that stuff. Um, and, you know, we spoke earlier of Dexter, but there's a friend of his who gave Hustle a very simple piece of advice. Tell us about Big Bob and what he told Hustle. Well, Big Bob was one of Dexter Brown's friends who worked at a record label and, uh, introduced to Nipsey by Dexter. And um, he was someone who recognized the brilliance of this young mind and he would offer him advice. And one of the first things that he said was, you know, the rules to being a rapper are very hard to figure out. They seem to change all the time. Rappers, you know, trends and, and fashions and the, the music industry changes all the time. But the rules of being a brand are ironclad. And there's a book that you can read called The 22 Immutable Laws of Branding. And he gave young Nip Hustle a copy of that book. And it absolutely changed his whole thought process, you know, um, because these super brands, the, you know, Apple and Starbucks and, you know, Nike, these are brands that uh, really have become bigger than the categories themselves, you know, like uh, you talk about, you know, blowing your nose on a Kleenex, not a, right. a tissue, you know? So it's, it's that power that Nipsey harnessed in his marathon uh, brand. And, you know, that book was a game changer for him. The other book that Big Bob gave to him was a book called Contagious, 
which is all about how ideas stick and, and catch on and what makes things become popular. And there's a chapter in the book about a restaurant in Philadelphia that was selling $100 cheesesteaks. And of course, this pissed off devotees of street food in Philly where you know, you're not supposed to pay much more than five bucks for a cheesesteak. But at this one restaurant, you know, they would present it with maybe some truffle oil and a small glass of champagne. And it became kind of like a, a prestige date, you know, impress your girlfriend, you take her to, to this uh, particular cheesesteak restaurant. And people like Oprah Winfrey were coming and was getting press. And so when Nipsey read that chapter in the book, he understood how he was going to market the Crenshaw mixtape. And it was that book from Big Bob that really sparked him to uh, make this proud to pay concept, which, as I mentioned, has become standard business practice for the music industry now. Yeah. And he, he went in full, uh, you know, the Crenshaw t-shirts took off uh, the all money and no money, money out brand. And as, as you mentioned, uh, you know, yeah. the tapes for a hundred dollars, you know, it's, it's just incredible. One of the things and my background is in music packaging, uh, but the marathon comes out, and I was blown away with its, con its uh, content and distribution. And, mm -hmm. you know, there's an essay in there. And it's just so forward thinking for the time and also, you know, for the genre of music. Well, yeah, I mean, nobody was putting it all together the way Nip did. I think hip hop as a genre is often underestimated and the complexity and the nuance of the art has always been a part of hip hop although it doesn't always get presented that way to the mainstream. But what Nip did that was singular was putting all of those things together. As you mentioned, the delivery through his website and you had to enter your email address to download the zip file and you got the, you know, the relationship with the customer and then, you know, just the vision of what a, the marathon represents, the idea that this is a long-term journey. We have turned our back on the major label compromises. We are doing this independently and we're stating our manifesto and doing all this, by the way, investing it back into the community. Like all those things is to me, it's the ultimate fulfillment of hip hop's mission. And, and Nipsey represents that. You know, it, it's interesting, too, because you mentioned it, and that, that is now de rigueur for most artists. You know, they get your name, your email, um, you sign in, they give you, you know, the merch because you take the CD and burn it and probably chuck the rest of it, but you're paying a premium price. Right. And he was at the, really ahead of that curve. Um, another one that he was ahead of, and, and, you know, it speaks to kind of his vision of success, is uh, the Green Rush, right? Yeah, absolutely. Well, you know... One thing about Nipsey Hussle, you know, music was a passion and he loved music, but he also understood it was a business and he was determined to elevate his personal fortune and that of his family and his community by all means necessary. So that also meant looking at other business opportunities as well. And he opened many different businesses, not all of which are as well known. There was a, a hair extension store that was doing great business. Um, there was uh, also a cannabis brand and uh, you know, the marathon cultivation is still going. They're still doing collaborations with growers in, in LA. And uh, there's a lot of very 
high potency and high quality herb being sold through the Marathon brand. So he, he recognized that opportunity as soon as it became a, an option. We're speaking with Rob Kenner, who's the author of a book called The Marathon Don't Stop, The Life and Times of Nipsey Hussle. Let's get back to the music for a second. You kind of referenced something earlier. Tell us about FDT. Oh, well, yeah, that record is one of the most important pieces in the catalog of Nipsey Hussle and YG, um, who collaborated on the track. Um, I'm not sure what the rules are for cursing on your podcast, but... um, can we go ahead and yeah, just we'll, say we'll, it's, yep. it? So it's, yeah, Donald Trump is what the acronym stands for. And why that record is important is, you know, when I was at Vibe Magazine, we did two covers on Barack Obama when he was first running for office. Um, Vibe was actually the first publication to endorse Senator Obama for president. And then in November of 2008, for, before the first election, you know, we did a second cover on him to mobilize the hip hop readers to come out and vote for him. And I, I think we all remember how much hip hop got behind Obama, you know, Jay-Z and Will I Am and Jeezy. A lot of artists were making records and uh, doing public appearances and, you know, getting behind this historic movement. But after eight years of Obama, obviously there was a backlash and a candidate merged who embodied the diametric polar opposite of what Obama stood for and in many ways I think channeled the frustration and rage of people who just never liked the idea of a black president and couldn't really stomach that and you know so as we can all see Donald Trump's campaign from the very beginning was built around dividing people you know that very first event at the trump tower when he came down the golden escalator you know he started talking about how mexicans are rapists and murderers and he was very soon throwing black kids out of his rallies he was endorsed by the ku klux klan and so you know in my opinion hip-hop really dropped the ball there unfortunately there was a a lot of hip hop artists who saw Trump as kind of a signifier of success. And, you know, he used to hang around with rappers before he was overtly involved in politics. And hip hop just didn't have a very good response to the threat that Trump posed. And the FDT record represents the only major pushback from the hip hop community, apart from, you know, like Mac Miller had done a a song about Donald Trump you know, sort of playing with the idea of Trump as a signifier of success. And then he disavowed Trump, but it wasn't the same as putting out a strong message of rejecting and rebuking all that candidate Trump stood for. And so before the U.S. Congress impeached Trump, it was YG and Nipsey Hussle who organized that response. And that response was FDT. It's worth noting, too, that the Secret Service demanded several lines be removed from that and other tracks on his record. And they they escalated the conversation all the way up to the very top of Universal Music. Absolutely. It was a very powerful record. And uh, I think they made the right decision, which was to keep it on YG's album, but to bleep out whatever offensive lyrics were, you know, making the Secret Service uncomfortable. But, you know, the the YouTube video is out there. Uh, the unedited version was in the streets. And 
you know, it was never a call to violence. It was a strong rejection of what this candidate stood for and the message of, of unifying rather than dividing is really what FTT was about. What's used to be called protest music. <laughs> exactly. I mean, you know, remember that um, on the record, Nip talks about um, relationships between black and brown youth in LA, you know, and there were a lot of people who heard Trump's rhetoric about Mexicans being rapists and murderers and understood that this was a threat to their safety and their livelihood. And, you know, Nip recognized that too. You mentioned earlier, Jorge Peniche, you know, his parents were from Mexico. Uh, he was actually an undocumented kid who, you know, was living in that gray area that actually, you know, the, the, the whole Donald Trump build the wall with Mexico rhetoric actually affected Jorge's life. And, you know, that, that was something that Nipsey recognized. And it was another reason why he, he took all of this rhetoric so seriously. But, um, you know, you can hear in the record, he's talking about not only bringing together YG, who is from a blood neighborhood and Nip, who's from a Crip neighborhood, but also bringing together black and brown youth and just forming a coalition to reject this rhetoric of, of racism and violence and divisiveness that, that Donald Trump represented. So it's a very, very important record. And I devote a whole chapter to it in the book because there's so much to unpack there. Yeah. And, and, you know, you could say that about Nipsey's life. I mean, such a young man and so many different innovations and, and touchstone moments that a lot of artists never get one of those. On the night of March 31st, 2019, uh, Nipsey Hussle is just doing his thing and hanging out in the parking lot in front of the Marathon Clothing Store, pretty much where he grew up, and letting fans approach him and take selfies with him. What do you think happened that night? Was it gang retribution or just random payback violence? I know that the the person charged is still awaiting trial, I believe. Yeah, he's still awaiting trial. Um, I mean, one of the things that I want to say just to preface all of these remarks is that you know the book the marathon don't stop is about nip's life and his work and his why he's important and i i wanted to make sure that it never became a murder mystery or a book about a dead right. rapper because you know that wasn't the intention you know i began this book before march 31st 2019 and when that tragedy took place, I realized there was even more urgency to tell the story. But, you know, I, I don't try to solve the murder and I don't actually know what happened. I think what I have done in the book is to gather as much verifiable information as I can so that, you know, perhaps in the future can shed some light on, on what really happened and, and avoid misinformation being spread, which is there's an abundance of that on the internet. But what, what is known is that Nipsey was there to meet someone who needed some clothes because they had recently come home from prison. This was something that he did quite often. He provided for people that were members of the community or members of the 60s um, to just help them get back on their feet and put them on a different path in life. So actually Sunday is not normally a day when he would have been at the store, but because this individual wanted to come 
and get some clothes to go to a family gathering. Um, Nip showed up and made that possible. And during the, the period of time that he was in the parking lot um, waiting for this guy to show up, someone else pulls up and that person is an individual named Eric Holder who was also a member of the 60s, um, also an aspiring rapper, not a very accomplished one. Someone that was known to Nip on some level, um, not a close friend by any means, but someone that he recognized. And uh, the record in the book is based on grand jury testimony and interviews with people who I spoke with directly. And so we know that um, they had words. The Eric Holder goes back to his car, drives away, um, him and a, a, a female associate that drove him to the store. A few minutes later, he comes back with two guns and proceeds to murder Nipsey Hussle. It's an atrocity. And why he did that, no one really knows. And we may never know. And and I do want to uh, point out, you know, for someone like me, that was where I really first learned of him. And so for your book, which opens with that night to some degree, and uh, I do want to emphasize how inspirational the tale is and, and what you've written is. And I just was curious about, it's just a, an ironic ending after all that well, he yeah. did and committed. So I, I, def, I definitely feel you don't want to get too too deep. No, I get that. it. So, but I, um, let me say this. I think that a lot of people, as you mentioned in the beginning of our conversation, a lot of people were unaware of Nip's movement until the tragedy of March 31st took place. And um, the world really woke up when that memorial happened at Staples Center. And, you know, there were people I spoke with from Nip's inner circle, one, one young man named Idris Sandu, who did all the the technical programming for the Marathon Clothing app, just a brilliant young software engineer who's also of African descent, also living in Los Angeles. Nip met him at a Starbucks and they teamed up and did all this incredible stuff. But Idris said that he refused to see the murder as a tragedy because he saw that it was part of some larger plan somehow that, you know, the message was spreading much more rapidly than it might have had this tragedy not taken place. And of course, that's one positive way to look at it. Obviously, it doesn't help the tragedy of losing a, a father, a son, a brother, a member of the community who has done so much. But, you know, there's multiple ways of looking at this tragedy. But one thing that I am sure of is that the person who did this, you know, we're never going to know all of the motivations why they committed this heinous act. And uh, I think the, the police investigation has never really tried to go beyond we have this person who's on camera pulling the trigger, the reasons of why he happened to pull in the parking lot at that exact moment and what motivated him. This is someone that, you know, was trying to meet with the LAPD the very next day to talk about relationships between the police and the community. Um, this was someone that was doing very powerful things to change lives and getting a lot of pushback from the police and local officials. And 
So there's a multiplicity of theories and, you know, there's the whole thing about the pharmaceutical industry and Dr. Sebi, which a lot of people put credence in. There's so many conspiracy theories that you could never chase them all down. And I mean, we're just hearing last week that the Biggie Smalls murder case is there's been new developments in that and that happened in the 90s. So, you know, I'm afraid that, you know, people who are looking for a full resolution of what happened on March 31st are, are never really going to get the full truth. And you know, there's some people that claim to know and they're not talking. And, you know, in the absence of verifiable information, a lot of rumors and misinformation thrives, especially on the internet and social media. So what I've tried to do in the book is just to set down what can be verified and at least working from that, we can reject things that just don't make sense and, you know, keep an open mind. But Nipsey Hussle had a lot to live for and he put everything on the line every single day and, you know, just choosing to stay rooted in his community. That's one of the questions that, you know, the book wrestles with even, you know, after we talk about March 31st is what are we to take away from this? You know, what does this mean for other people who want to be active in their, in their own communities and want to give back? You know, what is the appropriate way to do that? What lessons can be learned from that? And that's one of the most difficult parts of this legacy to unpack. Well, it's quite a legacy, and, and I want to thank you for writing it and speaking with us. And, uh, you know, our listeners, if you want to check out Rob's book, Rob Kenner, The Marathon Don't Stop, The Life and Times of Nipsey Hussle, it is, it's fascinating, and there's so much to it. He really was uh, quite the young man and uh, accomplished a, just tons. I mean, it's, it's incredible, you know, the things that he did that are still out there today, you know, in the music industry, as well as in some of the give back that you mentioned. Yeah, I wonder what he would be doing right now if he had not, you know, been taken away so early, you know, I can only imagine how involved he would be over the past year, all the conversations around race and, and justice in America, and, you know, he remains a powerful icon, even though he's not here physically. And, um, you know, that's part of the reason why I think people have been so interested in the book is that they want to learn more about him. They want to understand what his, his work and life were all about. And if there's one thing we need in times like these is inspiration. You know, Nipsey said that the highest human act is to inspire and you know, the last conversation that I had with him, the very last question I asked, I, I was more like a comment. I said, I noticed that you seem to be sharing a lot of your insights in your music and in your interviews. You don't seem to just want to keep them to yourself. You, it's as if you want people to follow in your footsteps. And he said, well, you know, I'm not outside handing out bags of money, but the game is free. And when I was a kid coming up, that's all we expected the older has to do is just give us a little of the game. You don't have to tell us all your secrets, but just give us enough game that we can maybe find our own way. And if you're secure enough in your ability to hustle, you're not going to be threatened by these youngsters picking up a little game from you and trying to make our own way. So, you know, this book, the marathon don't stop is my way of, paying that forward you know nipsey inspired me in 
ways just from the conversations that I had with him um, changed the way I think about my own life. And I'm not the only one who had that experience. And I, I, I want this book to be something that he might have put on one of his own reading lists. You know, I mean, he, he shared lists of books with all of his family and loved ones throughout his life. And, you know, it's, it's nice to see people picking the book up. It's nice to see universities starting to teach it. Um, Howard University and Stanford have both had me come talk about it. And I, I believe that Nip would have been pleased to, to know that. Thanks for this opportunity today to talk to you and your audience. And I would just say, you know, long live Nipsey Hustle. It's a damn good read, Rob. You should be very proud. And I'm sure he would too as well. Thanks for joining us, Rob Kenner. If you would like to buy this book, please go to allmusicbooks.com and you can buy it through our site. You can also check out the rest of our deep dive podcasts there as well and subscribe so you don't miss a thing. I'd also like to thank our engineer, Steve Folsom. You can check him out at fullsound.com. Finally, big ups to Frankie and the Pool Boys for their one-of-a-kind music played throughout the podcasts. You can check them out at frankieandthepoolboys.bandcamp.com and on all of the major streaming services. Please support local and independent writers and musicians. We're out until the next time, and thanks again for tuning in to Deep Dive, an allmusicbooks.com podcast, and now a proud member of the Pantheon Podcast Network. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.